Morning, gentlemen. Good to see you during this Advent season. <coughs> How'd you like that little Christmas medley? Uh, we tried you out a little bit, see if you can sing without the words. Uh, you, did, you did okay, okay. We decided to put the words back up. I think, we'll, I think we'll stick with words. I think you do better when you got the words. Well, uh, last week we looked at an important text, the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 7. Turn back there, and we're going to look at one verse today. Just one verse. You say, man, we'll get out early. You kidding me? <laughs> you know, it's not like when we were doing Deuteronomy, we'd just cover two or three chapters at a time and try to race through it. we got one verse today, but it's a very important verse, and that's the reason we're focusing on this one verse 12 today. But before we look at that, let me mention a few things from last week. Um, I need to make some, I think, some uh, corrections to about three things I said last week. One is that I mentioned in the text where Jesus uh, is uh, dealing with a woman caught in adultery that no one uh, could throw the first stone because they were not without sin because the only way you could witness an adultery was to be engaged in it. And some, one of you corrected me and said, that's not the only way you can catch someone in adultery, you can walk in on them. So I, and I, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, secondly, I mentioned last week, uh, sounds like somebody here maybe had personal experience, I don't know, but uh, uh, the, uh, the second thing I said was that I want to correct, I made a comparison between what's going on in the Middle East with some of the terrorism there and some of our American revolutionaries, and I got uh, corrected by one of you who said, our revolutionaries did not shoot women and children and innocents, and uh, absolutely correct. There is a huge difference between those two. So I, I recant with sackcloth and ashes uh, on making such a broad, uh, unfair comparison. And thirdly, uh, I said something about adoptive children, uh, making the point that uh, our Father really wants us to come to Him with our requests. And when we do, what it suggests is that we trust Him. And so when we ask Him, when we're asking Him for blessings in our lives, it's because we trust Him that He's able to do it and that He's willing to do it because He loves us and it delights Him. And I use the analogy of an adoptive child who sometimes won't ask because they haven't yet developed the trust. Well, one of you with adoptive child experience said to me, you know, that's not the only reason they don't ask. Sometimes they don't ask because they just can't believe how good their life is and they, they, they really are satisfied and can't think of anything else they want. Um, good point. <clears throat> so thank you all. Uh, I don't get by with anything here, and I appreciate that. Because <coughs> if I did, I'd be in real trouble. But thanks for those corrections. They're nicely made, and, and I would affirm all three of those. Well, let's look at verse 12, <coughs> and please keep correcting me, because you know if you think that preachers don't make mistakes or preachers don't say things that are wrong, <coughs> then I can't imagine all the wrong things you believe that you've heard from preachers through the years. Uh, so... You have, to, you have to listen to preachers with your head wide open and your Bible wide open, and be careful. Um, we do the best we can. Let's look at verse 12. Uh, this is on the Sermon on the Mount. It's following a text where Jesus has been teaching us how to live before God, not only as Father, but to live before God as our judge. And we saw how that means that we will not take his place and try to judge other people, that we will also be very careful with how we distribute the the jewel of the gospel in verse 6. And verse 7, uh, we will come to him in prayer because he doesn't cease to be our father at the same time that he's our judge and we trust him in prayer. 
Now he picks up with verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is called, gentlemen, the golden rule. And if you read uh, Stott's commentary on this, you notice that he mentioned the first time that we we have record of it being called the golden rule was from a Roman emperor in the 3rd century, Alexander Severus, uh, who had this verse emblazoned in gold on the wall in his chamber. So uh, and that's the reason it was called the golden rule. And it's amazing. He wasn't a Christian, uh, but he knew that this rule really does summarize everything that we want to be doing uh, with other people. It's very interesting uh, one of you gave me a, a book or loaned me a book one time that said <clears throat> there's uh, no such thing as business ethics. It was written by John Maxwell, who's written a ton of, ton of books, as you know. No such thing as business ethics. The point of it was not that we're not ethical as business people, but that you don't have to have a whole list of business ethics. There's just one rule, the golden rule. And Maxwell's point is if you'll just take that golden rule and apply it in the relationships with every one of your stakeholders... That would be your stockholders, your owners, your boss, your reports, your customers, your suppliers, the people who live in your community, everybody who has a stake in, in your life and in your business. If you just do unto them as you wish they would do unto you, just apply the golden rule in 360 in every direction in all those relationships, you got yourself a good business ethic right there. The great point he makes. So what we're learning here are really two things. We want to divide this verse in half. And the first half is we must love our neighbor as ourselves. And, of course, this comes from the Old Testament. Uh, it is the second great commandment. And Jesus uh, reiterates, it's in, it reiterates it in Matthew 22, verse 39. I've listed that there for you. Where he, he's asked by the scribes and Pharisees who were always asking these kinds of questions. You know, what's the big summary of the law? How do you boil it all down? Because they had all these laws. You know, they had 616 of them from the Old Testament, and then they added to those laws all the rabbinical uh, ethical injunctions that go with it, all the statute laws. They had laws everywhere. And so they were constantly asking themselves, how do you boil this thing down? So remember in Matthew 22, they asked Jesus on one occasion. This was between his uh, triumphal entry and his crucifixion that week in Jerusalem. They came up and asked many questions. And one was, what's the greatest commandment? That is, how, what's the commandment that's at the top of the list under which every other commandment comes? And Jesus said there are really two. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe couldn't do anything but say, I think you've answered well, teacher. <laughs> oh, Jesus said, thank you very much. Uh, so, he, he basically said there are two great commandments. It has to do with your relationship with God and then your relationship with your neighbor. And then, of course, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with your relationship with God, and the latter six commandments have to do with your relationship with your neighbor. So all the Ten Commandments, all of the Old Testament, all of the moral will of God has to do with our abiding by those two great commandments. So what's happening here is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is simply uh, giving us another iteration of that second uh, great commandment. And you'll find a similar statement by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. I've listed the text there where he says that if we love our neighbor, we fulfill the law. 
And of course what he means is that that's one of the two great commandments that summarizes all the commandments that have to do with neighbor love. So uh, this, is, uh, this is extremely important. It's a summarizing commandment. And if we abide by this, we will be indeed fulfilling the law and the prophets. Now what I'd like for us to do is to, to uh, look at five considerations uh, about this commandment that are raised in this text. And we'll just take it word for word. First of all, notice with the word so, okay, S-O, first word in the text. And what this suggests is that we keep the second commandment because he loves us. He uses the word so, or in the KJV or other translations, it's translated therefore. Well, as scholars say, when you see a therefore, you should ask yourself, what's the therefore therefore? What's the reason for the so? Well, it connects you to what goes before that. What's going before that? Well, what you have right before that is that God asks us, He tells us to pray. And He tells us to pray because He's our Father. And, and more than a human father who will, would not give a rock to his kid who needed a sandwich, our Heavenly Father will not do that to us either. He loves us more than earthly fathers do. And, and that's how we're loved. And then Jesus says, Therefore, love your neighbors yourself. Therefore, whatever you wish that someone would do to you, do therefore to others. He's saying, because you've been treated this way. You have a Father in heaven who looks out for you. You've got someone taking care of you. You've got someone who knows your needs before you ask it. You've got someone who's eager to answer your prayers. You've got someone who will take up for your cause. Therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You see the connection then. It's because He loves us that uh, we are to love other people. Now, this is vital. And we've, we've talked about this before in here, but let's just walk through it again. Normally, when we, let's, t- let's take a negative case. When we enter into conflict, take especially those of you who are married, t- take a conflict with your wife. When you've got a conflict with your wife, what's in your mind? Your mind is, these are the things that she did wrong that she needs to correct, right? That's what's in your mind. And when you're in conflict, you're trying to get something solved. And what you're trying to get solved is what she's doing that's irritating the bejabbers out of you. And yeah, you got it. So you want to be sure you get these things corrected. Now let me ask you something. What is in her mind? Same list, or different list, same principle. She's looking at you. She's resenting something about what you've done and she's trying to get you to correct it. And you're both like ships passing in the night. You have different agendas trying to correct the other person. Now that's the way conflicts normally go. Now how does the gospel cut through that? The gospel cuts through it because what the Christian mind does, it backs up and says, let's get a 30,000 foot view. And let's look at what's really happening here. What's really happening here is that above all things, you are a dirty, rotten sinner. You're a rebel who deserves to go to hell. You can tell your friends, the Bible teacher told you to go to hell today. That's what you deserve. That's what every single one of us deserves. That's what the Bible says, that we violated the law of God and we deserve to go to hell. That's eternal punishment. Now, let's keep the story going because you know it doesn't end there. We're not going to hell. Why not? 
Because someone took up our cause, 100%. We didn't cooperate in it. We didn't contribute to it. No, Jesus Christ paid the full price for us on the Calvary's cross and eliminated the sins and the punishment due to them that was on our record. Just eliminated, just washed it away completely. Now, here's a 30,000-foot view. You have a rebel who has been completely forgiven for his treason against the throne by the king himself who sent the prince, his own son, to die in our place. There's what you've got. Now, what should this person then do for his neighbor? The same thing. You little idiot. (laughs) What happens when you get into conflict? You become a little idiot. You've forgotten the big story. You're playing out a human narrative and not playing out the full narrative. That you're a man who's been completely forgiven everything. So the agenda then is to look how you can confess your sin. Look how you can cover for your wife. Look how you can do for her what the Lord's been doing for you. So it, it does what we call breaking the quid pro quo. The this for that. The tit for tat. And every relationship is conditioned. It's conditional. And what happens to you even in your neighbor relations, you, you, they become conditional. You know, I'll deliver the goods if you pay for them. Well, you go out of business if that relationship's not conditional. And then you bring that home to your wife. What happens when you're concentrating this way, and you got your eye on the therefore, you got your eye on S-O, you're saying, let me remember what comes before this commandment to love my wife. What comes before this commandment is that God has opened up the entire heavens to me so that I have conversation now in the royal throne of grace. I've been given access to the court of all courts. And so how can I possibly treat this woman this way when I've not been treated that way by my heavenly father? That breaks the quid pro quo between you and your wife and the quid pro quo becomes between you and Christ. And, and if you go quid pro quo there, this for that, what's the this he's done for you? What's the that you owe him? Well, it's complete love and devotion. Now, you just take that that and you just turn that that this way. And that's what he wants you to do is to pour your that, your quo, over here on her and show her the same grace that was shown you. That's how the Christian gospel absolutely transforms uh, horizontal relationships. The vertical breaks the quid pro quo with the horizontal relationship because you've been completely forgiven. That's the reason, that's the reason Jesus says so. It's because you're, you, you're brought into a context of love and all you're expected to do is to share the same love with someone else that's been shared with you. So, you didn't know it was such an important word. But here's what, Jesus, here's what John says. He's the apostle of love. He says, here in his love, Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His one and only Son as a propitiation for our sins. Therefore, He says, let us love one another. As God has loved us, let us therefore love one another. That's gospel love. And Jesus, obviously, is the chief communicator of the gospel. So you'll always find the therefore with Him. Our love for one another is always built on a profound foundation, a theological foundation where we not only know doctrine, but we actually know him personally because of his love. So we must love our neighbors ourselves because God loves us. Now, secondly, let's look at the word whatever. In fact, I'll go ahead and add whatever you wish. And here we're learning that we love our neighbors as ourselves in every circumstance. 
in every circumstance. It doesn't matter what the person needs. We will seek to provide as we have opportunity. Uh, turn with me, if you will, over to, to James chapter 2, and you'll find this on page 2394, 2393 actually, 2393. And here in James chapter 2, verse 8, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, he calls it the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then keep reading. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? In other words, if your faith doesn't issue into a changed life, is that a saving faith? Well, obviously James is saying no. The faith that saves is the faith that goes to work. Now, you're not saved by the work. You're saved through faith. But that faith that works in your salvation is a faith that works with people. That's what real faith does. If a brother or sister, verse 15, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if, if your neighbor in town is cold, and you say to him, I'm going to pray for you, but you don't bring him a coat, what good is that? <laughs> so what, what Jesus is saying, the therefore from God's love goes into whatever the neighbor Needs. Uh, we had, of course, a fabulous uh, expression of this, didn't we, last week with Lawrence DePrimo, the New York Police Department uh, officer who was walking down the street and saw a man on a cold night in Manhattan without shoes. And, he, and he, he lives with his parents, so you know he's not making a whole lot of money. And he takes $75, and so for him, you know, that's a lot of money. He takes $75 of his own money, goes in and buys a warm pair of wool socks and, so, and some new boots for this guy. Gets a good deal from the, the seller of the boots, but nonetheless, he spent his own money on it. And he goes out there and, and gives the, the shoes and socks to the poor man who's on a cold night without shoes. Now, there, there's, there's the golden rule, isn't it? Uh, whatsoever you wish somebody would do for you to keep your feet warm, just do it for them. And it's so simple, isn't it? And yet, did, did you see how that YouTube just went wild all over the country, all over the world? Millions of hits. Why? People are looking at the golden rule and they can hardly believe it. People don't normally do that. Do you see? And, and Jesus is saying, this is what my people do. They do the unusual. They do what other people might dream about. What other people recognize as good, but they rarely do it themselves. And uh, Lawrence DePrimo said he just took that receipt and just stuck it inside his vest and just keeps it there to remind himself uh, of who he is and what kind of world we're in. 
Well, that's what Jesus is talking about, is doing unto others as, as you wish they would do unto you. Now, one thing I'd like for us to stop and think about here, he says, whatsoever you wish that others would do to you. Let's think about this for a moment. Sometimes we, we really don't quite apply this because I don't think we've either understood it or thought about it enough. Sometimes we think when it says here that whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to the others, so it works like this. Boy, I sure wish somebody would give me a new lawnmower for Christmas. I know what I'll do. I'll give my wife a lawnmower for Christmas. <laughs> because, hey, hey, look, it says it right here. Whatever you wish that others would do for you. So therefore, do it to others. Or some of you, you tr you've tried this one before. You know what I wish somebody would do for me is to give me more sex. Therefore, I'll give my wife more sex. Uh, you tried it. Come on, you admit it. Yeah, you did. Now, you know something's wrong with that. Desperately wrong with it. And what it is is whatever you wish someone would do for you, it's this. Would look at your needs and love you enough to fulfill a need. That's what it is. Your wife doesn't have a need for a lawnmower. She probably doesn't have a felt need for a whole lot more sex. But she does have a felt need for something. And what Jesus is saying, here's what the Father did for you. He provided for you what you really need. He provided for you that if you were in your right mind, you would really want. And He did for you what nobody else could do, not even yourself. And what he gave was exactly what you needed. And it satisfied fully the deepest longings of your heart. How long do you think God contemplated that? How long do you think he designed to provide for you exactly what you needed? Let me tell you how long all eternity you've been on his mind. He's devoted to you. That's the reason that Jesus says you can ask him whatever you want and he'll listen to you. You knock on the door, he'll open it for you. you. You ask him, he'll actually give to you. He's got you on his mind. Therefore, whatever you wish somebody would do for you, do it also for others. In other words, do what the Lord has done for you. He has looked at your life and situation and he's gotten inside your skin. Literally, he got inside your skin. First of all, with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, He got inside our skin. And then He sent His Holy Spirit to get inside our skin, to know us intimately, and then to provide for us continually. Now that's what's being said here. Whatever you wish somebody would do for you, then do whatever they wish somebody would do for them. You get it? There's a big difference. One example of that, once again, going to the aspect of marriage, or it could be even uh, dating, of course, uh, the Five Love Languages, uh, the book that Chapman wrote that so many of us have read. And the point Chapman makes is there are different love languages. You know, there's the giving of gifts, the words of encouragement, physical touch, quality time, deeds of service. And if you're a deeds of service guy, and boy, it just really means love to you when somebody does a deed of service for you. Somebody does your laundry, man, you just fall in love with that person, you know? Your wife does that, you just love her for it. So you're going around doing her laundry. Well, she's got a different love language. She just wants you to tell her that you love her and that she's valuable and that you cherish her. Use words. You mean i got to talk? Yeah, you got to talk every once in a while. So you've got to, once again, Chapman's point is, 
Understand what the love language is over here, the love language of the person you're talking to. Take your workplace, for instance. Some of you think that, that you know, if you just take a little Christmas card and tell each of your employees how thankful you are, that, boy, they'll really appreciate that. Some of them will. But, you know, a $500 Christmas bonus would mean a whole lot more, actually. Uh, so why don't, why, don't you try, why don't you figure out what is it they want? Now, on the other hand, for some people, you know, a Christmas bonus doesn't mean nearly as much as you're taking the time to write a letter to tell them how much you appreciate their work on your staff or in your business. Uh, think about that person. You'll notice the, the really great coaches. If you, if you dissect the way they operate, you will always find those coaches know how to motivate people. And you will also find out that they realize that you motivate different people differently. And they design their motivation for the tailback quite differently than the motivation for the linebacker, quite different from the motivation of the quarterback. They, they know those players, and they know how to move them. And, and the reason is they know their love, love language. That's what those coaches are doing. They figured out the love language. Well, come on, guys. Let's, let's, uh, as a husband or, or a, a, a lover who's trying to romance someone, trying to get married, at least be as smart as the coach is with his players and realize that this person over here has a love language, has a series of needs, and you have to get inside the skin. You have to get inside her heart in order to be able to communicate. That's really what Jesus is saying. And it's the genius of Jesus Christ. When you've been loved that way by God, you now have the capacity to go to a person and do the same thing for you. If, if you've been interpreted by another, in this case we have, we've been completely exegeted, completely interpreted by God. He knows our every need and He's met them. Once you understand the gospel, you couldn't understand it unless you can see how He interpreted you and got inside your skin. Well, that therefore then gives you the capacity to do the same thing to the other person, to interpret them, to do for them what's been done for you. So in every circumstance, whatever the need is, that's what we, to, we are to do. Now, thirdly, he says, he uses the word others. And literally in the text, it's just men. So whatever you wish that men would do for you, do for them. So it's, it's everybody. It's every person. And you'll notice in Galatians 6.10, when Paul is teaching about this matter, he says, be kind to everybody, especially to the household of faith. So no one's saying you don't start with your own family and your own family relationships. No one's saying that you don't care for God's people first. But then having cared for them in concentric circles, then keep pressing out and keep caring for larger concentric circles of people as God gives you opportunity and resources. It certainly, don't you see it in the, in the sermon, uh, on the, uh, rather the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan we listed here in Luke chapter 10. What you find there is that it's the Samaritan who crosses all the boundaries to care for the Jewish guy, one of God's people. It was one of not God's people who was demonstrating the second commandment. And Jesus tells that intentionally to say, sometimes church people don't get it at all. Sometimes you have to look outside the church to find people who are actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. So he says, look, to every person, it applies across the board. It doesn't matter whether the person is a Muslim or a Hindu or a Protestant or a secularist or a Catholic or anything else. We 
serve our neighbor. We give to them. We're not looking out of the rearview mirror to see if they're applauding us or not. No, we're, we're doing it for him because of the therefore. We're seeking to honor God in all that we're doing. Uh, so n- notice here it's not just uh, toward believers, but it is toward everybody, including the most difficult person in your life. What I tell um, folks um, who are in marital strife are the two main things you got to stay focused on, assuming that this marriage has a chance. The two main things to focus on, number one, prayer. You're going to have to have outside power beyond anything you can do. Uh, and you know, usually by that time, uh, we've learned that we don't have the power to keep this thing together. So the first thing is prayer. And the second thing is just love. You have to stop keeping score on how you're being loved. And you have to just completely turn the tables and just realize that your calling in life, especially for right now, is just love that person unconditionally. That's, that's what has to happen. And sometimes you feel like your wife is your greatest enemy. Sometimes you feel like you wouldn't have any problems in this world if your wife would just clean up her act and just be a loving wife. That's your biggest problem. Sometimes you get yourself all warped up into these, these imaginations of your mind. You get yourself all good and victimized, feel really good and sorry for yourself, have a nice little pity party. And you've forgotten that you've got, no one removed the opportunity from you to love her. Nobody took that away from you. You're not victimized. You've got all the opportunity a man ever needed. As a matter of fact, right now that your marriage is conflicted, you've got more opportunity than the guy whose marriage is not conflicted. Because now your love is going to be known to be unconditional love. She knows that you're not responding to her sweet kindness. She knows there's something alien in your life that's producing this. It's your better opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. So you can't write people off because they haven't been kind to you. Jesus didn't say, whatsoever you wish that others would do for you, do it to the ones who deserve it. Or whatsoever you wish that others would do to you, do it to them when you feel good about the way they're treating you. No, sir, Bob. Look what he says. Do it. Do it to all of them. No, there's no distinction. And, of course, back to James and the royal law. He was so strong to say, you cannot show favoritism. And in the early church, they were showing favoritism to the rich. The church was mostly made up of poor people. And man, when they got a person with a real job or someone who is known to be wealthy, oh my, that just, the church was so happy to have a wealthy person. They started rolling out the red carpet and treating them with deference. And James says, shame on you. He puts his pants on just like everybody else. He's a sinner just like everybody else. And let me ask you a question, says James. Who's abused you lately, the poor or the rich? So he says, let's get a level playing field here. And what we do with our love is we have a level playing field because, remember, the love of Christ is not given to those who deserve it. Pagans give love that way. Christians give love based on how love was given to us. And while we were still enemies, enemies, Christ died for us. And so that's the way we love our neighbors. So it's unconditional to every person. Now, fourthly, he says, would do to you. And let me make an important point here, even a historical point. 
And that is that we must love our neighbors ourselves positively as well as negatively. What do I mean by negative? What I mean by negative is the way that most people communicated this concept in Jesus' day. Now, once again, if you read Stott, you read about the Rabbi Hillel who famously was asked by a pagan uh, worshiper at one point. He, he got on one leg like this, the pagan did, and he said, while I'm standing on one leg, give me the summary of the Jewish law. <laughs> so, in other words, I'm not going to be able to do this for very long, so I'm, I, don't, I don't want a long sermon. Now, don't y'all try that. While I'm standing on one leg, Wilson, give me your sermon. Don't do that to me. But that's what they did to Hillel, the, ra- the great rabbi. Now, they did it to Shammai also, and he, he refused to even try to answer But Hillel gave an answer. And listen to how Hillel put it. He said, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Do you see what Hillel is saying? It's true. It's a wonderful statement. But he's he's putting it in the negative. He's saying, Don't do to somebody else what you don't want other people to do to you. Now, what's interesting is throughout history, this is the version that has echoed through time. Confucius said the same thing. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, he said the same thing. In fact, in an early document, Christian document document called the Didache, the teaching, same thing is put in the negative. Notice how Jesus puts it in the positive. He, He doesn't say, although it includes this, but he doesn't just say, Whatever you don't want somebody to do to you, for heaven's sakes, don't do it to them. As true as that is, he says, whatever you do want somebody to do to you, you positively do that to them. And if you'll think about it for a moment, turn with me to Matthew 25. You'll see how another way in which Jesus teaches this. He's talking about the sheep and the goats, the judgment at the last day. And look at the standard for those who are measured as sheep and goats. He says in verse 31, this is Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And so on, you know the story. But you see the point? Jesus applies to both sheep and goats is what they did. It wasn't what they didn't do. He said, he didn't say enter into my happiness because someone was down and you didn't stomp on them. Someone made a mistake and you didn't criticize them. No, he says, no, you did these things. And so the whole way in which God's people are identified, the markers on God's people, they're people who not only refrain from evil, They're people who aggressively go after the good. That's what he's saying in the golden rule. That's what makes it golden. 
It's more than just a stoic asceticism, a stoic withdrawal from places of evil. It's a holy and active engagement in serving your neighbor because you've thought about your neighbor and what he needs and the ways in which you can satisfy those needs. Here's what Haddon Robinson once said about your neighbor. He said, when, when, the, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, which led to, of course, the story of the Good Samaritan, here's what Haddon Robinson said. He said, your neighbor is one whose needs you see, whose needs you can meet. Isn't that a great definition? The neighbor that you're to love is the one whose needs you can see, whose needs you can meet. So you want to know where the boundaries are? That's what the Pharisees want to know. Where's the boundary beyond which I don't have to go in order to justify myself? And Jesus taught the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan parable. There's your boundary. It's across every boundary you can think of. So wherever you can meet needs, that's where you meet them. So we're seeing that it's very positive, not just negative. This commandment does not merely forbid all petty malice and revenge. This commandment thrusts us into a hurting, broken, violent, aggressively hostile world to give ourselves for it. Now, fifthly, he says, do also unto them. It's in what we do. We must love our neighbor as ourselves in what we do. The Christian ethic is not just what we believe and know. It's not just what we intend or wish for other people. It's what we actually do for other people. One of my favorite ancient documents is a document uh, uh, that was drafted uh, from a man named Aristides. He was a second century lawyer in the Roman court. Aristides was uh, hired to represent Christians. Aristides was not a Christian. But in his argument before the emperor's court, on behalf of Christians, you should see what he says about them. He says, look, he says, O king, let me tell you about these Christians. When they're sick or at the point of death, they don't flee from them afraid they're going to die. They give themselves even at the point of death to take care of them. When one of theirs loses their husband and is widowed, these Christians, they take them in and take care of them, not like the pagans who would leave these widows to, to just fend for themselves. And, and he says to them, when one of theirs becomes poor, they take them in and they skip meals themselves in order for the poor among them to have meals. He goes on and on and on. And here's what he says at the end, Aristides does. He says, O king, there's something divine amidst these people. That's what he says. Well, here's the way we demonstrate the gospel and display Christ. We keep the therefore. We demonstrate that we know this kind of love that is unconditional. It's the love of the gospel because we're giving it in demonstrable ways to other people. People can't see our gospel from heaven, but they can see the gospel expressed on earth. And it leads to the question, is there something divine among you all? If so, how'd you get that? And that question leads then to a demand for the gospel uh, communication. The reason we're not as effective in communicating the gospel is because we're not as effective in demonstrating the gospel. And so therefore people are not even asking the question anymore. Well, let's keep going. 
Let's look at the second half of this before we, we close out today. He says about this second commandment, about this golden rule, he says, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, what a statement that is. Jesus claims that in this one sentence, this one commandment, that he has summarized the law and the prophets. Wow, it's amazing. Now, what we see from this is, first of all, his command motivates us. How does it motivate us? Well, look, there are many reasons to obey this command. First of all, if, if you do unto others as you wish they would do unto you, your mother probably taught you a long time ago, people are going to treat you differently. Your life's going to, it really is going to be easier. You'll find that when you give love, you're probably receiving more love. Uh, you get into the business community, and if you've ever had a mentor who has his head about him, he'll tell you that if you implement the golden rule, then people are going to like you, trust you, and respect you way beyond anything they would have done before. And if you're going to lead and have influence among people, you have to be liked, trusted, and respected. And if you just follow the golden rule, you'll find that those things happen in your life. Probably your daddy told you that if you just keep the golden rule, no matter what people do to you, if you'll do to them as you wish people would do to you, you can put your head on the pillow at night with a clean conscience and have a good night's sleep and give the next day, and you know in your heart that you've done the right thing. So, I mean, we can see all kinds of reasons to keep the golden rule. But brothers, here's the number one reason. This is the law and the prophets. It's the very Word of God. So regardless of what horizontal impact or even internal impact the keeping of this law might have upon our lives, the chief motivation is this is what God wants us to do. This is the reason He's put us here. He has called us out of darkness into light for this very purpose, that we may honor and glorify Him in a sinful and adulterous generation by showing love and grace, which is contrary to the very nature of this fallen world. That's the reason we're here, salt and light. Remember Matthew 5? We're to be different from the world, and this is the chief way in which we're different. So our chief motivation for doing what we do is the pleasure of God. It's the law and the prophets. It's His Word. That's the reason Jesus says it. That, yeah, your mama and your daddy and your mentor are correct, but that's not why you do it. That's not your fundamental motivation. It's the Lord that's your fundamental motivation. Secondly, notice that from this statement, His command guides us. When He says that this is the law and the prophets, here's what He's saying. If you want to know better how to do this, Study the law and the prophets. This is what they're all about. Study the lessons of the Ten Commandments. Study, as we did one year, a few years ago, in the book of Exodus, take those Ten Commandments, and then you see after the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, then you have casuistry law that follows. And that case law shows you how to apply the, the constitutional law. So study the law and the prophets. You want to know how to love your neighbors yourself? You want to know how to, whatever you wish they would do to you, you can do it to them? Study carefully the heart of God and the law of God in the law and the prophets. So we're motivated because it is the Word of God and we're guided by it because in the Word of God we're shown how to do it. Take, for example, Ephesians 4 through 6, those three chapters. Man, 
Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 gives us the way to live this out. Study it. Take it to heart. Devote yourselves to it. Just like we're doing on the Sermon on the Mount. The law and the prophets stay in the word. They will continue to guide you in what you're doing. Now, in terms of guiding us, let me close with this. Eventually, this guides us to the cross. And here's why. When you try to really to do unto others as you wish they would do unto you, you're going to find that you can't do it. (laughs) The reason you can't, you can't do it on your own. And you can't do it perfectly. And the reason is you're just like me. You you have sin in your being, uh, what we call the flesh. And you're limited in your capacities of love. And your, your flesh is fundamentally, consistently, always selfish. And you've got a battle on your hands. Now, you're going to win the war, but when's the last time we had a really big war and we can look back and say, you know, we won every single battle, every skirmish we won. No, I, don't, I can't think of one war like that. Wars are a combination of battles won and lost, uh, and we've won and lost some ourselves. And the reason is we're sinners. So what this command, like every command does, it keeps taking us back to the therefore. It keeps taking us back to the cross. It keeps taking us back to what God has done for us. Gentlemen, your heart has to be warmed by what someone else has done for you. And God has perfectly done it for you. And when your heart is warmed and you know your sins are forgiven, not just the ones you've already done, the ones you're going to do, they're already forgiven. You know you're completely wrapped up in His forgiveness and His love. Now you're set free. And now you can say, Holy Spirit, come take over my life. Empower me to love this person. Now if you're really walking in this way, you have the sensation of a power outside of you accomplishing something you can't do on your own. When you've got that sensation, you're probably now walking in the Spirit. That's prob- that's, you're probably in that. If you feel like, you know, this is really not that hard. I'm getting the job done. You're not there. You're just simply trying to impress people with your gifts. But when you're really trying to serve them in the name of Christ, you will have that sensation of being carried along by the Spirit and being set free from all your failings. That's when you know you're walking in His love. So really where this commandment guides us most of all is back to the cross and back to the Spirit's help for us to live the life that we're supposed to live. It's a golden rule. The emperor was correct because it summarizes everything God wants us to do for our neighbor. And it's the number one marker that we actually understand, believe, receive, and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very special verse in our Bibles. We thank you today for the reminder that we have fallen far short of your commandment for us. And we ask once again that you would forgive us for all of our sins and that you would give us the assurance of our forgiveness so that we know that before you there is no condemnation upon us, that we're not going to hell. We're going to heaven because of what you've done for us. And then, Lord, out of that gospel faith, we pray that you'll now move us to love others around us unconditionally in whatever circumstance.
and whoever the person is. Enable us to get inside their skin and to see life from their perspective and to help provide what is really needed. Lord, we pray that you will also protect us from being crushed by the overwhelming needs of the world that we live in and the city that we live in. For, Lord, oftentimes when we look at the magnitude of human need, we just give up. And rather, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to see the the small and large opportunities that are right before us every day. Help us to take seriously every encounter. And help us to love the neighbor whose needs we see, whose needs we can meet. Enable us to be the kind of man you want us to be. All that your name may be honored and glorified not only through our words, but through our attitudes and our deeds. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.